Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of gun violence, murder, suicide, and other adult content. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. On Thanksgiving Day 2009, the mouth-watering aroma of roasted turkey, freshly baked pie, and cinnamon apple cider permeated the whole house. Laughter and chatter testified to a happy extended family all together under Muriel and Jim Sitton's roof to celebrate Thanksgiving. But the supposedly happy family was missing one member. Carol Marriage rarely saw her son Paul these days. His behavior was too erratic, and his violent threats too unsettling for anyone to feel safe with him around. So most years, he simply wasn't invited to Thanksgiving dinner. Which is why it was so surprising when Carol's husband stepped away from the table to answer a phone call. He returned a few minutes later to announce that Paul was arriving soon. To undercut the awkward tension, Carol joked, I hope he doesn't come and kill us all tonight. Her daughter retorted, Mom, it came to my mind. The table quickly dropped the topic. Carol's husband didn't appreciate their dark humor, and it wouldn't do any good to worry everyone over dinner. After all, Paul would never really harm his family. Little did Carol and her daughter know that at that moment, Paul was loading $2,000 worth of guns and ammunition into his truck. He'd been planning for this day for years, and finally, he was going to get his long-awaited vengeance on his parents. Welcome to The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original. A show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our seventh episode on the dark side of holidays. 
The holiday season may be seen as a time of celebration for many, but its saccharine exterior conceals many unpleasant truths. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other Parcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Today, we're looking at one of history's most brutal holiday massacres. On Thanksgiving Day 2009, 35-year-old Paul Marriage opened fire during a family gathering. He killed four people and injured two more in what's come to be known by many as the Marriage Family Slaughter. The brutality of the killing shocked America. A heartwarming get-together became a bloodbath, leading many to wonder, how does someone commit such a troubling act on a day devoted to giving thanks? As we discussed in Holiday Psychology, the first episode of The Dark Side of Holidays, family events can be stressful, even fatally so. In that episode, we explored all of the possible deadly, unintended consequences of holiday gatherings. Exhaustion, drunken misbehavior, and violent altercations can all turn a happy celebration into a tragedy. But today, we'd like to zoom in on one particular negative aspect of the holiday season, violent crime that takes place on Thanksgiving. According to attorney and author Philip Jett, Thanksgiving is one of the most dangerous days of the year. Reported assaults are consistently about 20% higher at the end of November. Something about Thanksgiving in particular seems to bring out people's aggression. That's because the holiday can bring together a dangerous confluence of several factors. First, it marks the start of a stressful holiday season. It's easy to get caught up in gift shopping and preparing for the December holidays and New Year's Eve. As the year draws to a close, many businesses are focused on the end of the fiscal year, a major source of anxiety. People have to work longer hours to finish end-of-the-year projects, all while clamoring for prime vacation days. And if a company is doing poorly, with layoffs on the horizon, many find themselves wondering if they'll even be able to afford all the gifts they're buying. In addition, former police officer and social psychologist Brian A. Kinnaird found that people are more likely to commit crimes when their regular routines are broken. The daily grind of commutes, work, and school can pacify most ordinary people. But when someone gets time off to celebrate Thanksgiving, they can come unmoored from the stabilizing force of routine and feel more inclined to lash out. Finally, Thanksgiving dinner is served with a side of social pressure for everyone to get along and have a nice supper. There are sore subjects that don't get discussed, black sheep who don't get mentioned, and ribald comments that everyone lets slide for the sake of peace and harmony. Of course, just because everyone agrees to ignore a problem, it doesn't go away. 
Tensions simply simmer under the surface. Pressure can build. And eventually, all of that repressed frustration is bound to explode. Combine that with the fact that violent criminals are most likely to target people they know. And for many Americans, there's no more comprehensive collection of close friends, family, and acquaintances than those who gather around the Thanksgiving dinner table. Anything can happen over turkey and cranberry sauce. That was a lesson that the marriage family learned too late. By the time of the massacre, Michael and Carol Marriage had known for years that there was something disturbingly off about their son, Paul. But the warning signs were subtle at first. As a child, he was the pride of the family, getting good grades and earning his way into the University of Miami's honors program. We can only imagine the way the family previously gathered around the dinner table, perhaps even on Thanksgiving Day, to brag about Paul's achievements. He was their oldest and set a good example for his younger twin sisters. But as the semesters wore on, the stress got to him. Paul couldn't keep up with the pressure to succeed. In 1993, when he was 19, he suffered what was later described as a nervous breakdown. Paul was diagnosed with obsessive-compulsive disorder, underwent extensive counseling, and was prescribed medication to help him manage the condition. But he refused to comply with the doctor's orders. He didn't take the pills. He was resistant to further therapy sessions. Over time, his OCD got worse, until he couldn't work, couldn't sleep, couldn't even live an ordinary life. He spent most of his time bathing repeatedly. We can't say with any certainty how the marriage family initially reacted to Paul's diagnosis and mental struggles. But what's evident from Paul's later statements to the police is that he felt scorned by his parents and sisters. After all, he'd spent his early years as the golden boy, the overachiever. Now he believed he was a source of shame, a dirty little secret his parents kept hidden. He went from being the shining star of Thanksgiving dinner to an unmentionable black sheep. At least, that's how he perceived things. At some point, although the date isn't known, Paul sought treatment from his uncle, Antoine Joseph. We don't know whose idea the arrangement was. Maybe Paul willingly initiated the sessions himself, or perhaps his parents pressured him to get help. We can say that it's very unusual for a mental health professional to treat a family member due to potential conflicts of interest. Perhaps his uncle's treatment also contributed to Paul's feelings that his family was ashamed of him. In his mind, they couldn't even bear to let an ordinary psychologist know of his struggles. Instead, his diagnosis remained a family secret, something that only a relative could handle or treat. Eventually, Paul stopped seeing his uncle. Without any kind of treatment whatsoever, his mental state only declined further. He behaved erratically, violently. He was said to have attempted suicide at least once, and he regularly threatened his sisters. Reportedly, on at least one occasion, he told one of the twins that he wanted to slit her throat. Later, counselors speculated that Paul was jealous of his younger siblings because they managed to achieve success in adulthood 
when he hadn't. As the marriage family grew more and more uncomfortable with Paul's violent threats, they began to hold him at arm's length. In the early 2000s, Paul, now in his late 20s, filed a police report complaining one of his sisters was plotting to murder him. It's hard to say after the fact whether this testimony was credible or just a symptom of his own paranoia. But he withdrew the complaint a few weeks after he placed it, and there doesn't seem to have been any follow-up police investigation. Then, in 2006, his 30-year-old sister, Carla, filed a restraining order against 32-year-old Paul. She cited several death threats he'd made against her. She, too, withdrew the report fairly soon after she filed it, and the police didn't follow up afterward. Legal holds or not, everyone in the marriage family agreed that something about Paul was just off. Even distant relatives heard bits and pieces of the rumors. He stopped attending family gatherings altogether. So in 2009, when Muriel and Jim Sitton agreed to host the extended marriage family Thanksgiving dinner, they didn't have the slightest inkling that Paul might show up. Nobody imagined that he'd want to. He'd been absent for years. It didn't even occur to Paul's parents or sisters to invite him. But 35-year-old Paul had grown bitter, alone, and untreated. He looked to have grown resentful of his family for seemingly shunning and abandoning him. And finally, it looked like he decided to take matters into his own hands. Up next, the marriage Thanksgiving dinner ends in a bloodbath. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now back to the story. After years of untreated mental illness and erratic behavior... 35-year-old Paul Marriage was an outcast within his own family. But in 2009, he apparently resolved to get his revenge by murdering everyone on Thanksgiving Day. In early November, Paul began purchasing as many guns as he could get his hands on. He visited multiple shops so no one could trace how quickly he was stockpiling weapons. He also repeatedly demanded that his parents disclose the details of their Thanksgiving dinner plans. They were initially hesitant to extend an invitation. They weren't sure where his sudden interest had come from. Even stranger, when his parents asked point-blank if Paul planned to come, his answers were evasive. The marriages couldn't tell if Paul wanted to make amends or was just being his old, unpredictable self. Eventually, Carol and Michael relented and asked him to join them at the Sitton's house in Jupiter, Florida. Paul continued to play it cool. He didn't confirm or deny if he'd accept the invitation, even when they reminded him that a head count would help with food prep. But Paul wasn't thinking about turkey or cornbread or wine. He was plotting to murder the people who had supposedly wronged him. And Thanksgiving Day was the perfect time to commit his crime. 
His parents, his siblings, his nieces and nephews, everyone he'd grown to resent over the years would be conveniently gathered together in one place. He'd see to it that none of them lived to break the wishbone. When 13 members of the extended marriage Sitton clan gathered on November 26th and Paul wasn't there, his parents almost forgot about the earlier invitation. They figured Paul had never really intended to come. He was just behaving oddly again. In his absence, there was fun to be had. Everyone gushed over his sister Lisa and her husband Stephen, who were expecting their first child. They tasted appetizers and asked Paul's uncle how the medical practice was going. In the early evening, Michael was surprised to get a phone call. It was Paul. He wanted to come after all, but he needed directions to the Sitton's house. Michael told his son how to get there, then hung up. When he rejoined the party, Michael told his wife and daughters about the call, but allegedly failed to let the Sittens know about the surprise guest. So it was something of a surprise for everyone when Paul arrived at the front door. But of course, nobody wanted to start a fight on Thanksgiving. So the hosts welcomed him into the house. After all, it's not like they were in danger of running out of food. Over dinner, Paul declined to eat anything. He was quiet through the meal, simply letting everyone else chat while he listened and observed. Nobody was sure if this was uncharacteristic. After all, it had been a long time since Paul had attended a family gathering. Nobody was very clear on what his normal looked like anymore. But silent was better than violent or threatening, so the family was happy to let him sit quietly. Dinner seemed to go well. Three hours passed without incident. There were no fights, no arguments, not even an off-color joke. Paul seemed to be cooperating with everyone's goal of a happy, peaceful Thanksgiving. They ate dinner. They made polite conversation. Six-year-old Michaela Sitton showed off her hand-drawn cards. She even put on a costume to sing a piece from The Nutcracker. She had a recital scheduled the next day and was eager to show off her pieces for the family. The gathering seemed destined to be a perfectly successful, if unmemorable, Thanksgiving. But all the while, Paul was biding his time. We can't say what he was waiting for, Maybe he still hadn't made up his mind to move forward with his deadly plot. Or maybe he just needed the right trigger. The last thing the marriage family ever did together was gather around a piano to hear Michaela sing. Everyone cheered the six-year-old on. They told her what a good job she'd done, how proud of her they were. It was the kind of praise that had once been lavished on Paul the kind of thing he didn't hear anymore. One survivor later speculated that Paul grew jealous of all the attention Michaela received. For nearly his entire adult life, he'd been shunned as an outsider. But this child so effortlessly won the family's enthusiastic affection. While Michaela's clear, bright voice rang out across the cozy living room, he slipped away to fetch his gun. Nobody noticed at first that he was gone. Michaela finished her song to enthusiastic applause. Jim and Muriel put Michaela to bed 
and the rest of the marriages chatted and snacked on whatever leftovers they could scrounge. Still, no one really noticed that Paul was gone. When he re-entered the house, he had a loaded rifle in his hands. Before anyone had a chance to realize what he was doing, Paul took aim and shot his aunt, 76-year-old Raymond Joseph, in the chest. She fell to the ground. She was badly injured, but the wound wasn't a fatal one. Raymond's husband, Antoine Joseph, the same uncle who treated Paul years before, crouched on the ground near his wife. He tried to keep her calm and staunch the bleeding from her chest. He watched, horrified, as Paul calmly leveled his gun at Raymond's midsection and fired at point-blank range. This second shot was unquestionably fatal. Next, he turned his sights on his uncle. They were only inches from one another. There was no way he could miss. Paul pointed the muzzle and pulled the trigger. But the gun jammed. Paul attempted to shoot again, but it still wouldn't fire. But Paul had plenty of backup weapons. While screaming family members scattered for the doors and windows, Paul fired as many rounds as he could. He struck his brother-in-law, Patrick Knight, and his cousin, Clifford Jabara. They weren't fatal shots, but they were enough to drop the injured victims. He killed both of his sisters, 33-year-old twins Carla Marriage and Lisa Knight, as well as Lisa's unborn child. As he stalked through the house, picking off his victims, one survivor reportedly overheard Paul mutter, I've been waiting 20 years to do this. Another relative described the evil, haunting look on Paul's face. He was a man possessed, and he wouldn't be stopped. And his horrified family would soon discover that he was willing to cross any line to pull off the bloodbath. Somehow, six-year-old Michaela remained asleep through the entire conflagration, until the moment that Paul turned down the hallway toward her bedroom. Nobody believed that he, even in the midst of his murderous rampage, would kill a harmless little girl. But after all, Paul appeared to be jealous. It was her singing and the praise she'd received that may have been what finally tipped him over the homicidal edge. Paul's brother-in-law, Patrick Knight, was still gasping on the ground, right where he'd fallen after the bullet hit him. From where he lay, he could see Paul walk through Michaela's doorway. Clear as day, Patrick could hear the gunshot. He prayed that Michaela had only been injured as he watched Paul walk out of her room. But then Paul paused and returned. Another gunshot resounded as he shot Michaela in the head just to make sure that she was dead. Knight recalled how Paul was almost casual about administering that second blow. As Michaela's father, Jim Sitton, later explained, he tried to snuff out the light. He came into a baby's room. He saw her innocence, and he walked in and purposefully killed her. Paul left the Sitton house shortly after he shot Michaela. Once they were certain he was gone, the surviving marriages, Sittens, and other relatives left their hiding places and called the Jupiter police. Ambulances arrived in a matter of minutes to assess the damage. They identified the dead and rushed the injured to the hospital. Michaela's parents, Paul and Muriel Sitton, 
were astonished when first responders reported that somehow, even after the shot to her head, Michaela was alive. Muriel watched emergency workers rush her daughter out of the house on a stretcher. It was an image that would remain emblazoned on her memory forever. Sadly, the six-year-old succumbed to her injuries during her helicopter flight to the hospital. She was Paul's fourth and final homicide victim. Patrick Knight, the now widowed husband of Paul's sister Lisa, was rushed to the hospital along with the marriage's cousin, Clifford Jabara. Clifford's injuries proved minor, and he was soon released. Patrick had to be placed in a medically induced coma for months. He ultimately recovered, only to awaken to a shattered, grieving family. The marriage family was caught in an omnipresent wave of grief and confusion. Nobody could make sense of their loss. Nobody knew how to move forward. While the marriages grappled with their new reality, the police focused on another pressing task, avenging the dead. First step, they had to find Paul Marriage. Up next, the police finally catch up with the killer. Now back to the story. On November 26, 2009, 35-year-old Paul Merrid showed up for Thanksgiving dinner at his cousin's house, even though he hadn't been invited by the hosts. He was quiet for the first three hours of the gathering, until he suddenly opened fire. Ultimately, Paul's rampage killed five people, including one unborn child, and injured at least two more. It's hard to say why he stopped firing after fatally injuring six-year-old Michaela. After all, there were 14 people at the Thanksgiving dinner, most of whom avoided injury altogether, including Carol and Michael Marriage. Forensic psychologists who reviewed the crime developed a theory. Paul did what he could to cause the maximum pain to his parents specifically. He used murder and the subsequent grief as a cudgel to hurt them. After all, for years, he supposedly felt like the dirty family secret, the person who never came to holiday dinners, who was made to feel unwelcome on the very occasions where everyone should be accepted. So Paul Marriage decided that no one in his family would ever have a happy Thanksgiving again. As near as police could tell, Paul planned to kill himself after the massacre. He bought a book on assisted suicide and placed online orders for helium tanks, plastic bags, and tubing. It seemed clear he intended to gas himself to death. They searched the swamps of Jupiter, Florida for his body, but found nothing. That's because Paul Marriage never went through with his suicide plans. Maybe he found that it was harder to kill himself than it had been to murder his family members. Perhaps after his bloody rampage, he couldn't stomach the thought of more death. Or maybe after he got through the stress of Thanksgiving dinner with the family he'd hated, his murderous rage abated. As we discussed earlier, Thanksgiving can be a pressure cooker. Maybe once the event passed, his bitterness dissipated. Whatever his reasons, Paul was still alive and free, and his survivors grappled with a lack of closure. 
For four days after the massacre, Jim Sitton couldn't bear to return to his home. He and his wife had lost their only daughter and witnessed even more violent death there. He feared that the memories were too fresh, and once he set foot inside, he'd relive the trauma. Jim steeled himself to return home for the first time on November 29, 2009. To his surprise, as he strode through familiar hallways, he found himself recalling memories of the good times. His house didn't feel like a mausoleum or the site of a mass killing. It was the home of many cherished moments. It was a place to connect to those who were gone. When Jim walked into Michaela's room, he found a story she'd been writing still lying beside her bed. He flipped through the pages, and tears rolled down his cheeks. In that moment, Jim felt a sort of cold comfort. Confronting the sight of his daughter's death was a first step toward healing. But the grieving process was sure to be long and painful, and it was merely a matter of hours before catharsis became anger once again. He wouldn't truly be satisfied until his daughter's killer was captured. The police offered a $10,000 reward for any information that led to Paul's arrest, but no one came forward with tips. They also disseminated descriptions of Paul and his royal blue Toyota Camry. These efforts, too, proved futile. So the police widened their net. Soon, everyone in America who owned a TV was going to know about Paul's crimes. In January of 2010, episodes of America's Most Wanted profiled Paul marriage. It did what conventional search tactics hadn't. Within hours of the first airing, a viewer pointed police to a motel in the Florida Keys. Police apprehended Paul in the Edgewater Lodge on January 2nd, 2010, just over a month after Thanksgiving. When they burst into his room, they found Paul on his computer. He was searching for information about his own manhunt. Later reviews of his search history found that during his roughly six weeks on the run, Paul had closely followed news about his case. It was hard to say whether he planned to use this information to aid in his escape or if he was just intrigued by his moment in the spotlight. After all, by getting his name in the papers, Paul was finally the center of attention once again. It's not unusual for criminals to become fascinated by their own news coverage. But when police took Paul in for questioning, they quickly realized that he was anything but an ordinary criminal. During interrogation, Paul seemed unaware of how serious the charges against him were. He asked how long the trial would take and how long he'd be in jail. A year? Two years? When the police assured him that the legal proceedings were bound to be lengthy and the jail time even longer, he seemed disappointed. But Paul still gave a statement on the Thanksgiving massacre. While he never explicitly took credit for the killings, his rambling confession included phrases like, it's not even real, I'm not violent, I've never been violent. It was as if Paul couldn't grasp the severity of multiple murder charges or that he didn't understand that what he'd done was wrong. Which helped his defense counsel lay out the perfect strategy. 
Hall pleaded not guilty for reasons of insanity. In the United States, the insanity defense can be used when a person confesses they committed a crime but claims that mental illness impaired their ability to understand their actions were wrong. Paul's inability to grasp the consequences of his murderous streak seemed like a textbook case. The state responded to Paul's lawyers with an offer, seven consecutive life sentences in exchange for a guilty plea. It was a good deal. If Paul's case went to trial, he faced a possible death penalty. So he accepted the offer. But there are actually three parties who have to agree to any plea bargain. The prosecution, the defense, and a judge who ensures that the deal matches the severity of the case. So in October of 2011, 37-year-old Paul Merridge, several survivors of the massacre and their counsel, gathered in Judge Joseph Marks's courtroom to hear his ruling. Jim Sitton testified, begging the judge not to accept the bargain. He thought that Paul needed to pay for his crimes with his life. He held up a picture of his murdered daughter, Michaela, as he said, justice is what's at stake here. But his impassioned speech was for naught. The judge accepted the terms of the plea. As he issued his ruling, he told Paul, you'll never see the light of day. State's attorney Michael McAuliffe was pleased with the judge's ruling. While he knew the victims wanted the death penalty, he was confident that a lifetime in prison was punishment enough for Paul. He later told the press, Paul Marriage will have no ability to affect the lives of those he has harmed. But McAuliffe's prediction proved too optimistic. Even though Paul was behind bars, his actions sent ripples of cause and effect through the family. And even in his absence, the survivors turned on one another. Jim Sitton seemed to have found himself focusing on what-ifs. Couldn't this tragedy have been prevented if Paul had never come to their house in the first place? If the marriages had checked with Jim first and he'd forbidden the last-minute guest, wouldn't they all still be alive? Wouldn't he still have his little girl? In the fall of 2011, Jim filed a lawsuit against Paul's parents, Carol and Michael Marriage, citing their recklessness and irresponsibility in knowingly inviting a dangerous and unstable man into his home. He explained, If someone brought a rattlesnake or a pit bull to your home without your permission, and that pit bull started attacking and killing people, wouldn't you hold that person responsible? The time for family unity was long past. As they prepared their defense, the marriages countersued, arguing that they were victims of defamation. They claimed that the Sittens were given advance warning that Paul would attend Thanksgiving dinner and never gave any indication that he wasn't welcome. They argued that Jim's case was built on lies that damaged their reputations. They even cited the treatment Paul received from his uncle. How could the family claim they were unaware of Paul's violent capabilities when one member had a first-hand glimpse into his psyche? In 2012, a judge threw out Sitton's lawsuit, but the marriage's legal troubles were far from over. Their son-in-law, the widower of Lisa Knight, sued them soon after, again for failing to take the proper steps 
to keep his loved ones safe. This suit was also dismissed in 2014. And since then, the marriages and the sit-ins have more or less managed to escape from the public eye. Hopefully, they found some form of closure. It's easy to feel like these sorts of tragedies only happen to other people. While most people think of Thanksgiving as a day to eat turkey, watch football, and visit with relatives, the holiday has always had its roots in violence. As we discussed in last week's episode, in spite of wishful stories about pilgrims and Native Americans coming together to share a peaceful meal, the reality is that European settlers in America committed genocide against the indigenous people. And the violence has only continued. The marriage family slaughter isn't even the most recent Thanksgiving family massacre. In 2016, a man in Knoxville, Tennessee, stabbed his parents to death and then tried to dissolve their bodies in chemicals to cover up the crime. It's just the latest example of the pressure cooker we discussed earlier. Saccharine images of holiday cheer often mask deep underlying tensions. And those tensions sometimes drive people to lash out in violent, deadly ways instead of remembering what they're thankful for. While a bloodbath at the Thanksgiving dinner table is far from the norm, we as a culture may be fascinated by these kinds of crimes, less because they're so outlandish and more because they're strangely reassuring. We learn we're not the only ones who are stressed, and we're actually holding up pretty well if we can get through the holiday without killing anyone. As for Paul Marriage, as of 2019, he's still in prison. He hasn't made any kind of public statement or appearance. Perhaps he's also undergone treatment and begun the journey toward healing, but there's no way we can know for sure. One thing we can say is that Paul evidently succeeded in tearing his family apart in some profound ways. The violence and the subsequent lawsuits seem to have ensured that anger and grief would outweigh the love that once bound them all together. We can't say for sure, but it's doubtful that they get together for Thanksgiving dinners anymore. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we'll take a look at the greed, consumption, and physical dangers that come just after Thanksgiving on Black Friday. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like The Dark Side Of, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream The Dark Side Of on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Paul Liebeskind. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>